G'day folks, AOS Coach here and welcome back to the channel. I am very excited to be having this discussion. Wrong time, by the way, I have COVID. So if I go on mute or start coughing and try to quickly mute myself, you know why. Uh, but I'm very excited because this is a chat that I've wanted to do for a long time. One, my guest is an absolute legend, and I've wanted to talk to, to Tom for a long time. Um, Tom Morsley, the captain of the um, English team from the Worlds, who won the Worlds tournament, but also you've been a champion player for such a long time. Um, a list innovator, we were literally just talking about one of the, a couple of years ago, I was watching Tom, I think it might have been Bad Dice, or I can't remember what tournament it was. Maybe it was Hello, Hello, Hi, Blood and Glory, yeah. Blood and glory. I'm watching him teleport cities of Sigma, blowing people off the board. Uh, but Tom is an absolute champion, nice guy, captain, good player. But more importantly, we're not talking about just individuals. The topic of today is going to be about the worlds, but also how do you build a champion team? And Tom, I don't know if you've noticed this, and I'll get your introduction in a second, but the team's format is becoming more and more <coughs> popular. Rewind four or five years ago, it was very much not a big, not a big kind of talking point. Mm. Now there are so many teams tournaments that are popping up, and it's so different. Yeah, I think that's our topic. Yeah, so team tournaments have exploded. Um, England's always had a few, right? So there's there's always been a, a few team events. I can't remember where the first one came from. To be honest, it was back in sort of sixth, maybe seventh edition, um, old world, but. So we've had a few go through um, through the years, but now internationally and with Worlds and ETC previous, you know, things are things have gone absolutely crazy for, for Team Warhammer. And it, it is, and it's not a meme, it is the best way to play. It's a really good format. I got to experience it a few years ago. We have a uh, team's format called the Runax run by Gabe, which is a great event. Um, but it's popping up right you know i think it's brotherhood is it uh chris tomlin runs is it i think it's yeah. Bro black yeah brotherhood, brotherhood. yeah um america brotherhood, is running brotherhood the... one of the best events on the calendar and it was a real shame i couldn't be there this year because team events in the uk generally have been four or eight players so you've had the four player events which generally become uh, mates clubs or, or you'll get some gaming clubs like i've always done them with local clubs um then you've got the eight player events which have been largely six nations like the international side of things but chris filled that gap with the six player um which has meant sometimes when you've had a club where you've got four players that would normally go the other two find it hard um whereas with with a six player event you get everyone involved and it's really yeah it's super super good shout out to chris for, for that one yeah and, there, and there's a lot of really cool ways of doing it right like i remember runax um in the previous i've seen events in the past i remember doing my very first teams format where they made us do one team for every grand alliance so, yeah. which was which was cracking yeah there's um there's so many ways to innovate on the format you know with singles warhammer you've got the ghb as a framework but the team team format is a framework above so you know you're you've got so many things that you can do like a lot of places run no duplicate war scrolls and um, some do no duplicate core battalions or maximum two no duplicate grand strategies allegiances and all that sort of thing that just adds that extra thought you know I'm, I'm big on writing lists and and team events really really hone in on that you know you're not only writing a list for yourself you've got to make sure that each person conforms within the the, the pack as well and the, the different ways that a pack can be written you know there's yeah, there's talk of doing odd number teams at the moment, which I think is is an interesting one where 
you don't necessarily need to record a player's score. You have a you have an odd hopefully you have a, a clear winner on just on game results. So one team will win three, one team will will win two, and that team wins the round. Um, which is which is really interesting. And then the pairings would have to be done differently because it's not number. Let's let's take a step back here, Tom. Uh, by the way, I'm I seeing know. people like Agnes jump in from hey, the Agnes, and I think Ryan here from Team Malta and Ziggy, and there's a lot of great people joining. And and it kind of just shows that the team format is becoming very even artist Opus coming in, like all this. <laughs> yeah, your milkshake brings all the boys to the yard and the girls. Look at that. <laughs> but let's rewind for a second because for most people, they probably don't know about uh, about what a team's format is does that mean four people rock up on the table at the same time we all have 500 points is it like a doubles where it's like two versus two um i clearly know the answer but for anyone who maybe doesn't know the format and seen it can you explain a bit about what teams is is as a yeah so so the first part is obviously forming the team every every event every player will do that differently um on the table itself you you rock up you've got your number of people on a team versus the same number on the opposite team, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, there's a bit of a pre-game phase. So you're not playing all together. That would be a little bit chaotic, I think. Um, you're playing individual games, but with predetermined opponents. And the way that you determine those opponents is through a pre-game phase known as pairings, um, where, again, each pack is, is slightly different, but involves some form of sort of one-upsmanship and, and um, using generally cards to determine who who plays who yeah so the format itself is not specifically just one it's still 1v1 but the way it's structured and each of them are different right we we, we rattled a little bit right there's runax there's worlds there's brotherhood there's six nations there's the american team championship just to name a few and they all run it a little bit differently but ultimately it's 1v1 but it's a team playing and the way that you play the game the way that you are matched up it's not just you know top versus 1v2 and 2v3 it's yeah, very much it's, a whole different structure it's the beauty of it you play 1v1 warhammer but with a with a greater goal you know you've got the camaraderie of being there with people who are either your friends with or you think are good and you, and they can carry you to victory hopefully both um so yeah it's that it just adds that extra level of excitement to a game of warhammer it's also the camaraderie. I, I appreciate the fact that I have a team and whether it's win, lose or draw, we come together, we discuss, we brainstorm, we strategize and yeah. there's very much a community feel and and it's still match play. But the, I don't know, I always feel like it, I always feel a little bit different. Like when you're at a singles event, you know, it's, it's cutthroat if you're, if you're trying to win the event. But with this is a lot of collaboration and it's a lot of community involved too. The the best thing about it, and Darren's in the chat, so he'll he'll know what I'm saying, is after a singles event and you go to talk to your friends, you're like, oh, how did your game go? But in real real terms, you don't care. What you want to do is tell them how your game went. But actually, so when you when you're playing a team's tournament, you've got four people and they all care about it. So you you talk about it and everyone's invested because that result matters to those other three people. So, you know, the the chats that you get after the game is is fantastic as well. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's such a great format, and I'm really happy to see it growing. And I imagine more countries are going to run it. And um, I, like I said, like I've got Runax. I've heard maybe Australia might run a second one. Whether you go to a Worlds or not is irrelevant. Um, the team's format is just something special, and I highly recommend. For those see it come up. Well, we're we're super spoiled in the UK. You know, we're on a you know a, a pinhead compared to a lot of countries. But with a team event, you've got. Um, you're traveling with four people. So actually it makes those long distance tournaments probably a little bit easier to swallow as well. You know, you're not traveling on your own potentially to play a singles event. And then if you don't do well, you're traveling back for X number of hours. You know, you've got, you've got traveling buddies built in as part of the team, which just makes it yeah. so much better. It does bring you together. I find, I find when I go to a team's format, you are talking more as a group. So you'll have like a, a WhatsApp or a Discord. You'll have some type of yeah. group chat where you'll be list teching and brainstorming and giving people feedback. Not that you don't do that in a singles event, but I think teams brings you together a little bit closer. You probably group uh, carpool or travel together to the event, a lot of socializing at the event. And it's overall just a great experience. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people in chat. Everyone learns more, I think, as well, because it just naturally brings out more conversation. You know, you're you're learning from other people's games because you're invested in them. Um, especially like for me as a as a non-player for some of the events, and I'll probably touch on this a little bit later on. I get to walk around and watch eight games of Warhammer at Worlds, and the amount of info that I can absorb from that is is really helpful. So you have mentioned Worlds, and I, I do want to acknowledge Worlds because, again, champion team, you were the captain um, captain and coach, ca or just captain? Not Non-playing captain slash coach. Um, so I was the non-player. So I did the, the running around, the gathering beers, waters, doing the shop runs, and then did the pairings and the other things as well. So what on earth made you get involved in the team's format? I think first off, if you're going to travel, especially as a non-player, what got you to apply for Team England? What got you to play, to coach? And I guess <clears throat> in this discussion, I want to break down a little bit, get in your mind. How do you create that team? You know, what's the list going to be involved? Um, how do you do the pairings and the matchups? I want to get deep into it, but before we get into that, what got you into it to, to, to teams and why would you, why would somebody apply or want to play teams? I, I mean, we're all in this, just to answer that last question, we're all in this hobby to talk to people and, and make friends, right? You know, you're in Australia, I'm in England. We have never spoken without Warhammer. And I think worlds and international team events just brings that, you know, it's scheduled, right? You, you all go there, you all talk to each other and you walk away with friendships that, that you know, I, I still speak to people from, 2013, the first ever international team event that I did, um, you know, so those sort of friendships just just last forever. So why I got involved? So I I've been playing Warhammer for 17, 18 years, or something competitively for that long, you know, since I was 15, 16. Um, I applied for Team England for seventh edition, I think it was, or maybe even sixth. Um, I didn't get on the team, got some feedback, um, went away acted on the feedback, won the Masters that year afterwards, and then made the team for 2013. Um, and that, to me, that process was really cool. And I just, that it sort of really got me involved basically forever at that point. So I've been involved in sort of the English International Warhammer since then. Skipped a few years just because, you know, you can't can't travel internationally to do Warhammer every single year, although you'd love to. Um, I finished up 
the old ETC days um, as when they were playing the Ninth Age. I played for England one year, having never played the game before, but again, they just we were struggling for members, so went out and, and played, but also did the, the non-playing thing twice as well. And at that point, I was like, actually, I could get behind this. You know, the, the non-playing side of things was was really interesting. You get all of the, the experience of the world thing without the games, not getting in the way, obviously, but, you know, you can you can man-manage and still have a good time. You're not just traveling to walk around a hall. You know, you're still talking to people and, and things like that. So when, so it was ETC in Croatia, in Zagreb, there was the first Age of Sigmar ETC as a side event, and it was four teams. So it was like France, Hungary, and I'm gonna—I I can't remember the other two. Um, France won. Um, it was a, a four-player event, and they wanted to grow in 2018 in Serbia, Novi Sad. So I took on the the captain role. Kind of, I just put my name forward. I set out a mission statement. I said, "This is what I want to do," and it wasn't about me going to the ETC. It was about setting the scene and growing the team as a whole throughout the years. And to do that, I made sure that I was not a player because I didn't want to go and say, I'm going to the ETC and I'm also one of the six because it was a six-man event. Then it's not fair on the on the community. What I wanted to do is just make sure that we take the best team we can and then put the building blocks in place after that. Um, and that's where it came from. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so cool. And by the way, for anyone who isn't familiar the Worlds is probably one of the few tournaments that has this captain coach role. And I think Ryan was also calling it busboy. Um, and you look at, I think it was at the French that had like the little trolley cart of drinks and yeah. snacks. And um, that's something else. Shout the out French to the French team. Were, um, they, they take this really seriously. Not that we didn't, um, but that what they, the prep that they did was, was another level, you know, from, and this is all not rumors, but I, again, people telling me and things that they had, they all stayed in Airbnb. Um, so they were all together. They debriefed after every round. They had a chef with them, nutrition, like a nutritionist almost. Um, yeah. Um, so these little, um, they they gave them to all their opponents as well. Little bags or cartons of charcuterie, nuts, um, like really healthy food. Now, we're sat there drinking beers and, and eating meat, basically. Um, pizza. <laughs> um, so they were... They, yeah, they had their, their little cart that came round and made sure the players, and to be fair to them, they always offered their opponents things as well. So they were fully prepared for that. You know, they all had little sacks of, of little things that they gave out to us, which had some dice, some meat. I didn't know what was in mine, so I took it back to the room and left it in the room. I did not know that there was meat in there. No, that's um, fair, you, you, especially for anyone who's got dietary requirements. I guess where I was going with that before you doubled down on how awesome that was, was that the captain coach role is something that's unique to the world. It's something that if you went to Brotherhood or Runax or American Team Championships, it's something that you probably wouldn't need. But when it comes to worlds, and I guess especially with an eight-person tournament, it becomes really big. But I guess one of the things is that you can make it as big or as little as you want, right? I've yeah. seen people dress up. Like I remember watching one team dress up as the Ninja Turtles. It was a four-person tournament, and they dressed up as one of the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Some of them really get into themes. Some of them we practice. Did, you get a house. Sorry, go on, Tom. For a, for a brotherhood uh, in, I can't remember the year now, COVID has thrown this right out. Um, but it was myself, um, the four Face Hammer guys, uh, and Tony, Tony Moore, who lost to Marvel, RIP. Um, 
we um we spent the friday we'd done a little bit of prep for pairings and then we thought actually we don't have any club shirts so we went out to the local supermarket bought some plain white shirts and some permanent markers and just drew our own club shirts and we were up until like 2 a.m and we spent more time on the shirts than we did on the prep for the event and it showed we came fifth so um, it could be as it could it could be as awesome as you want this to be, or you, you, look, it could be a a whole bunch of just friends coming together and playing Warhammer and bring, building a community. It can be as competitive, and you could get like a practice, you know, a house to practice, like in worlds. And I know America, for example, like a couple of weeks prior, literally spent a week in a house practicing, yeah. trialing, using lists, just trying to understand the meta and. Um, yeah, I think that's where we're spoiled as in the UK. You know, we see each other at least once a month generally at, at events. Now, we're not always sat there practicing together, but there's always opportunities to talk. You know, whereas guys like the, the people in the US, they're from different states. So, you know, I, I'm, I'll butcher it if I try and think where people are from, but they're obviously not close. Um, like to give you an example, we played the Warhammer World Team event, it was like three or four weeks before worlds or a week before list submission um i was on a team i was captaining a team of people who weren't going to worlds but using the event as practice for pairings just to try out some different things but me and jack both finished our game super quickly one round when we were playing their team so me and jack played another game to test something out for worlds so you it affords us being close together and seeing each other affords us that opportunity to to talk and practice a lot more than potentially other teams which yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to show a photo for anyone again who might not be familiar with the format. So here's just an example for anyone who's watching. Um, just what what it looks like. It is a bunch of a whole bunch of tables. Lovely. This is worlds, by the way. Um, lots of teams. I love the 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 esports kind of shirts, and everyone's in like in their nation national colors. And um, I, well, something that was really nice as well at the worlds is people seem to trade their jersey um, to their <laughs> opponents or some type of. There was very. I don't, I, I walked away with eight different really. shirts, some some new countries. I, I I keep them, so I've had them from 2012. So I've got a box of shirts from various countries over the years. I um, don't generally wear them because I, I'm not too fussed about swapping with somebody that that I fit their shirt. It's more of just a memento. Yeah, um, yeah it's super cool. So let's talk about the actual formation of the team. I think people who are listening to this are either excited to play, maybe they've already played, and they're thinking, how do I get better? How do I understand the meta? How do I build a team? And look, in you know, in, in situations outside of worlds, it's pretty hard to say, hey, Tom, you're in my team. I need you to play Gits, and I want you to play this. And, you know, like, let's be realistic for a second. But when I am a captain or if I'm going to build a team to attend Brotherhood, AT, ATC, some type of teams tournament, <clears throat> what, are you, what are you considering and how are you thinking about the team structure in general? Do you have any tips and hints? Do you just find the best players that I can? Do you find the best list that you can? What goes um, through your mind? So if we're talking specifically sort of local or um, national team events, not international. I think. Yeah, let's just talk. Gen that... Let's just talk generally. Let's just talk generally, not specifically. Yeah, so I think it's a different level when you when you start looking at worlds. So locally, for for us, we've got we've got clubs, we've got friend groups, um, and often you will pick a team from within those groups. Um, now you're looking at, yeah, you're looking at good players. Obviously, you you need people that that can win games on the table. Um, 
if you've got a choice between somebody who's more practiced with a better army, you'll sometimes take them. Um, but also, I think the key thing is making sure the team gets on. Um, you know, you're spending a weekend together. Some some people might make a mistake, and you don't want somebody who's then going to jump down the throat about it or mock them. Or you know, although you know we do as you know, I think it's hard not to um, rib on somebody if they make a mistake sometimes. But it's about sort of being able to pull together as a team and say, look, you know, you didn't do well this round, but we all did, so it doesn't matter. You know, the end result is the team result. We don't care about individual results to a point. We need to make sure people are performing, but some people will have a role some rounds. Um, to use Richie as an example against Denmark. Um, so we gave Richie the, the Teclas match with his Fire Slayers, which was terrible. But we spoke to him before the game and said, play it this way and get us three points. Um, and actually he got four, I think, maybe even six, which is huge. You know, that's and that's something that he might walk away then thinking, oh, I've lost the game. But as a team, we made sure he knew he was going to lose the game and we didn't expect him to win, but we gave him a target and he achieved it. And that was fine. That was just as good as winning a game for us. And that's something that we always highlighted um, as a team. But in terms of selection, yeah, you'd... Something within a within a country, you probably end up going with friends because um, that's kind of who you naturally play with, gravitate to, talk to. Um, there used to be, with, with some of the, the rankings, you used to get points for team events, which is a controversial subject in the UK. So sometimes you would end up with super teams. So you'd have people from all over the place and they'd forge their own little narrative to how how they were friends, they'd make a gaming club up, they'd make some shirts and things, but in reality, we all knew that, that they were there to to win and get those rankings points. Um, but uh, then, yeah, for Worlds is, a, is another level because you're picking the best people from those different satellite groups in a lot of cases. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like again, depends on how serious you are, right? Like, um, I know when the last Runax... I was just going to pick a whole bunch of my moderators that were in my Discord. There was going to be another trip to, uh, event that I ran that it was just a bunch of mates. And <laughs> they were all, you know, people that I traveled with, I played with for a long time. And also the other consideration is a lot of teams, tournaments, won't let you double up on faction or war scrolls. Yeah. So it was also kind of finding people that had a diverse set of armies that could play different styles. Because if I'm this, the, the Gargant player, for example, then I'm denying somebody else playing Gargants in the team. So I need to find maybe someone who plays Skaven or someone who yeah. plays Sylvaneth, someone who can kind of come together. And that the pairings and the matchups and thinking about the meta and there's so much consideration. And I guess for a team's event as well, not worlds because worlds again you try to build the most meta or optimal and practice but i have no authority like i can't tell someone to come into my team and i need them to go buy models i need them to go paint and play with certain armies we're all just having fun i think the the good thing about the team format is you'll generally have a pool of armies so you know if somebody owns gargants and that's what they play they they'll probably know another faction and then you just have that conversation between you. Like, okay, so we've got two people that want to take Gargants. God forbid why anyone wants to, but there we go. Um, you know, flip a coin. I, I don't mind. Somebody choose. I am, even on Worlds, I've never been a dictator of, of what armies people want to play. I'll veto if there's some, some idiotic comments. 
but I'll never say you are playing this, you are playing that. Um, apart from Darren with Seraphon, sorry, Darren. Um, so that that side of things, yeah, you often find yourself lending armies to other people. Um, so just to make sure that that everyone's playing something different and it all conforms within the pack. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's funny, funny you mentioned Darren because one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I was listening to Darren. He got a new podcast. Is it Miscast? I think it is. Um, and I was listening. And I was listening to the episode, and they were talking a little bit about this red, orange, or the traffic light system, right? And I think Darren was talking about a lot of his matchups were being matched up as red. So we'll talk a bit more in a minute, like how you do the pairings in the matchup. But sometimes when you play in teams, your goal isn't to win every game because in most tournaments, there's a cap. You know, out of a four-person tournament, it might be capped at three wins. But yeah. your goal might be just to to deny your your opponent or reduce the scoring potential of the team and maybe deny them battle tactics and tr- grand strategies as opposed to all four of us or all six of us must win every game. That's yeah. not the incentive structure. Yeah, 100%. And that depends on the pack as well. You know, there's... Um... Byron looks at Bone Splitter's army. That you made your own bed with that one, buddy. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, uh, the each pack will dictate how those um, those bad matchups will play. Like the the Warhammer World pack is all about grand strategies and battle tactics. So we learn after round one that actually, if somebody's matched into a bad game in that one, you can effectively ignore the objectives. Because they don't matter. You, the major win is the major win. It doesn't matter how many you win or lose by. The the differential points came in battle tactics and strategies. So you would, you know, if you were in a bad matchup, you would ignore the objectives and just try and deny a couple of tactics to maybe walk away with two or three points. Um, but yeah, you're right with with the cap, which is another beautiful thing about about team events is no one can ever run away with it because that cap does um, it puts that ceiling on the the teams because you may get team A matched into team Z, you know, whoever that may be. And if they walk away with 160 points, all of a sudden that is super hard to, to catch up with. So having a cap there, which at Worlds was 120, so it was six 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 big wins, six 20s. Um, so often you'd end up, if you were capping, you'd often end up with five wins and then some minor losses and, and things like that. Um, which is, it was, the cap was quite hard to achieve in some in some rounds. Um, yeah, the players will play into matchups that they they don't think they can win, um, and that's fine. That's that's why we that's why the pairings exist. Somebody takes the bullet every round. What I try and do is make sure it's not the same person every time. Um, you know, because as much as we win and lose as a team, psychologically winning and losing as an individual is important. Um, you know, I don't want anybody to go. Oh, and three or in, in a day or something like that because although it doesn't matter to the grand um the, the grand picture of it all that person isn't going to feel good um no and nobody's joined your team so you know th- three of you can get like optimal matchups and win all their games and there's this one person just feeding to the wolves giving them the worst matchups okay. they're I'm, losing i'm not a huge fan of the under the bus term in a, in a general sense, because I think it eliminates responsibility of, of a player on the team. You know, under the bus, I'm not expected to get anything. Like, no, you're all, there's always an expectation there. You know, there's, and nobody joins a team to be that person every round. Sometimes it may be like going back years and years, I played Chaos Dwarves at 
ETC 2012 in Serbia. And I was that person. I was the, you know, you've got the threat of a Doom and Darkness Hell Cannon, which can just ruin your opponent's day. But if it doesn't work, you might lose 12-8. And actually, so I got two big wins and, and four small losses, and that's exactly what, what was needed. But I think that person needs to know going into it. If, if there is that person on the team, they need to they need to be almost held on a pedestal. You know, they need to be the one that's congratulated for getting eight points rather than somebody getting 20, because it just needs to make sure they're in the right mindset. I might bring up this slide. This is something oh, that I shared yeah. in the this is something that I shared in the Aussie discussion. And this is a pairing system. So um not necessarily Sorry, what bro, can I just do. can I touch on Ryan's point? He's just made that there's no please. unwinnable game. Sorry. Um I think there is an unwinnable game. Um the problem being is if you're in a game that is quote unquote unwinnable, often trying to win it is worse than trying to lose it small. And knowing that going in and that that's sort of the sort of the pre-game knowledge of knowing that you're in a game that yeah you might have a a two percent chance to win but if you go for it you end up with no points or you could take a 60 percent chance of walking away with two often the team's going to be happier with two if they've told you beforehand that's that's knowing the matchups that's not um you know i think there are games that you can't win they're few and far between but often it's about minimizing the loss rather than trying to win sorry no, 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 but you're right. Like it's the definition of success. You know, it might be a very hard matchup. You might have like the ultimate counter, right? Your army is full of rend and all you do is rend and you're up against, I don't know, Night Horn and they, they, ignore, they are a hard counter to your army, hypothetically, right? Yeah. Yes, it can be an absolutely tough matchup and the expectation on me might not be to win it. But to your point, my, my goal is maybe, to, look, winning is a bonus, but I want to score all five of my battle tactics if I can. I want to score my grand strategy if I can. And if I can deny my opponent one or two of their battle tactics, that as a team would be a win yeah. because the incentives are capped. So um, that can be an important consideration when when you're coming up against what you've defined here as a red system. And what I find really interesting is, as you've said, is there's a whole pre kind of matchup process, right? Where, if and I'm, I'm describing this for anyone who hasn't been to a, a, a team's tournament, it's not just you know the tournament organizer matches me up with Tom. What happens is it's team versus team, and there's a little dance and there's a little process that happens, and everyone does it differently. You know, people put out their captains first, or then there's you put out two random teams, or there's a whole structure, right? Like it's there's like maybe three battle plans that kind of get shuffled around, and you know, there's a whole bit of fun and. You know, it does change a little bit. But one of the most important things that I've realized in the team format is I just don't rock up and try to work out the best. There's this whole pre, pre-understanding of the, of the meta, pre-understanding of my opponents. So I guess my question to you is, how on earth do you anticipate the meta? How do you pick <laughs> factions? And then how on earth do you do the matchup? Because most people are not the rain man. They don't know every faction. They don't know every player. They don't know the skill. They don't know how every little thing works. And that putting your players in a favorable position is important and not putting someone quote unquote under the bus is also important. So yeah. paint the picture for me of, of the, the meta and the process and the lists and how you anticipate things and then how you position them. 
So I think that the meta as a as a thing is is a really hard one to judge. Now TTS has brought this a little bit closer together, but previous years you've no idea what other countries do, right? Every country plays the game differently, and whatever the top players do in that country dictates what the other players do because they try and counter each other, and it creates this sort of inbred meta as such. Um, I suppose by definition, a, a meta game. Um, every country has has different ones. TTS has brought that. Uh, a little bit closer together with the advent of more people playing across the pond and, and doing various um, remote events. But what we didn't do is try and predict the meta too much, right? So we we looked at the, the way that we win the event is we pair well. And in order to pair well, we need good data. In order to get good data, people need to be playing factions they're comfortable with. Because it's not about knowing what the opponents are bringing. It's knowing, okay, so we, here's the eight armies that we've got in front of us. I know I can be X, Y, and Z. And give me that data. I'll use that to make sure we, we win the round. Um in the in the way that you know, we were trying to we we had chats, you know, we we spoke on on Discord a few times about you know what what do we expect? We did some mock pairings. We, you know, we thought, okay, well, these are the eight armies that we think are gonna be there. How does our eight pair into into that? This is before we wrote specific lists. Um one of the things that we had with um with worlds um and and things is just making sure that we had no duplicates which to be fair was fairly easy i think the only argument argument we had was life swarm um and that just became a little bit of a meme within the team because everyone wants life swarm um so that was the the one sort of discussion that we had i think we had a discussion around prime as well um jim may have wanted it for a stormcast list but but we gave it to to darren um, just to keep him sweet, because I'd forced him onto Seraphon. Um, so we didn't do an awful lot of, you know, this is these are the lists that we expect to face. Because I think a lot of the time you could look at a faction and you could almost write the list. There's some variants, and sometimes there will be curveballs as well. But often you, you know, you've got. I think I worked it out as if you looked at every person versus every team in every scenario, it's over twenty one hundred data points. Per player um it's just it's unfeasible right you can't you can't ask a person to sit down and say okay well this is this army into this scenario in this team so players this is what you're going to take you know you tell me what you want to take we'll make sure that it fits within the, the team um we had certain players denoted as aggressive players so we like somebody like jim tinsdale who's a really good smash player so if we're going to take dragons it's going to be him um we looked at I, I was the bit of a whipping boy for testing some lists at various events. Um, so we looked at, can you take a Stormcast list with long strikes that doesn't have dragons or fulminators? So if you wanted to take the Living City with dragons and fulminators. And the Stormcast list looked like an Excelsior Annihilator, bomb and, and things. But it's just, you're, you're, taking, you're making too many sacrifices. You're making one army 5% better, but the other army 50% worse. And and you are you even going to play enough games with that army that's five percent better to know that? I don't think you will. I don't think I don't think anybody plays enough games with an army where small decisions make a difference because you're playing a random game, you're playing with a random list against random opponents. You don't know whether things are better than others. You can only go off your experience with it. So lean on the player's experience, what they want to take. Give me a rough idea of a list. We'll share them. We'll veto if there's anything that that perhaps doesn't fit. Um, 
But then you've got players, you've eight players playing something they want to play with the knowledge of how to play it, which means that your data that you get for pairings is infinitely better than if you say, right, you've never played Giants before, take Giants. So Giant, Giants is a good example, actually, because I, I initially told Richie that he was going to play Giants because of the... Uh, and, and to be honest, I think I was wrong in this. I'll hold my hands up. But because of the scenarios and the way that they were done in the pack, there was always a good scenario for Giants every round where you can put it up. And even if it's playing a bad matchup, the scenario is good. You know, like it's a hero mission or it's one way you can kick objective backwards or, or something like that. Um, but Richie just didn't gel with the army. Um, so we're like, okay, well, that's, that's fine. You know, if, if it may fit with the team, it doesn't fit with you. So we won't take it. Um, and, and I think we were right not to in the end. Um, I would have liked to have seen more giants there just to prove my point, but there was <laughs> maybe maybe it's proved my point that no one took them. Um, well, I'm so, sure the hunt. I'm sure the hunt played a massive part, giving away two victory points for every dead gargant. Mm. But you're right. Like there's there's a part of it that you need to play what you love, whether it's um, really good, it's average. You know, obviously, when you go to Worlds, there's a higher expectation on your performance. But if you're just going to the average team's tournament it's better to find a list that you're comfortable with, that you've practiced, you can understand the micro decisions and how you interact. That is far more important than, than just chasing the optimum meta lists in most situations. And yeah. I just want to call out one comment before I pass the back um, the mic back over to you. Nordo mentioning a really interesting point is that, you know, the other consideration is that the way that teams look at bad matchups, it can actually vary from team to team or nation to nation. Because, you know, I might not want to play a certain faction, but actually they don't want to play me too. So, you know, it can be perceived <laughs> very differently. There's such a mind yeah. game in all of this. One thing that I would have loved to do, but just didn't get the chance while we were out there is to actually, so the output that I did here for, for our pairings, I'd love to see some of the other teams, you know, just to see where, you know, did we, did we out pair or was our data better? Because you know, it could be one, it could be a combination, it could be one or the other. It could be that we thought we had more good matchups than they did, and we were right, or it was the other way around. You know, we we were wrong, but we just paired better. Um, and having that output, I'd encourage, even from a learnings process, right? Encourage teams to look at something like this if they've got a spreadsheet. And if you want to share it with me, fantastic, please do. But it would be it'd be nice to see the output from um from other teams as well. Because yeah, there's there's definitely a few times, at least that I can remember, where we paired somebody into somebody else and they both thought they were going to win. Mm. So it's like some either somebody's right or it's close enough that it's actually a game and it's it's more of a who played better on the on the table. See, you, you've talked about how this is an important part, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. Getting favorable matchups will put you in a better position to win the event or win more games overall. Because sometimes it's the it's the right armies in the wrong battle plans, or it's the right battle plan with the wrong combination of armies, or whatever it might be, right? So imagine I'm the average Joe. I'm average Joe going to the American Team Championships in a couple of months' time. How do I do this? Do I look at my four players or my six players and look at ranking systems do i match up and look at how the tsn network or the itc has certain players ranked and think will i beat them am i looking at a faction level am i looking at both player and faction like how on earth do i do you know what, what advice would you give to me to understand 
this traffic light system? So I'd massively encourage not looking at player. Um, I think you beat yourself on the you beat yourself before you start at that point. Um, if you look at you know somebody who say okay using the US team championships, you look at Bill, Emma, Jeremy, you know those sort of people who who will go and they'll five out big GTs over in over in the US. If you look at them and I can't beat them, it doesn't matter what they're playing. It's no good for the team, and you you're encouraging them just to quote unquote throw you under the bus at that point because you've already lost in your head. Um, and Darren's a huge um, believer in this as well. You, the psychology is is massive. Um, the the key thing is, is it, the more you know your army, the better your data can be. But don't be afraid to ask people as well. You know, there's if you go into a team, there's a collaborative effort there. Now, sometimes you don't you don't want too many cooks. But if you know somebody, say you know somebody plays the opposite faction, talk to them and say, you know, how would you feel into this? How would you play it? You know, and get the feel for it that way. And you'll be wrong sometimes. You know, we were wrong in in some of the games. Um, either in pairings or we made bad decisions on the on the table or in the scenario or something like that. That's fine. You know, you'll go into your first event. You're never going to go. And, you're not. You're not going to go and win it. Are you? You, you? You're going there to learn. Encourage if you can. If you're not there specifically to win the event, try and do the pairings so that you play the better players or that you play the armies that, that you don't know an awful lot about because you've got, in a singles event, you can only play what's in front of you. In a team event, you've got a choice. So use it to get more practice. Um, different if you're going with the intention of winning, right? You want to play the armies you can beat. But if you're hovering the mid-tables, use it as an experience. And I think from a future application to international team play, that's more beneficial. Because you've got more experience at team events, playing against different armies. So if if a, a team needs an army being used at an event, volunteer for it. Learn more armies as well. Um, things like that. Do do you in try to encourage different styles? So if I'm building a team, um, are you going to say, look, I need one army that's you know a flood of boards, zombies, clan rats, goblins. I need one really powerful magic army. I need one aggressive you know, combat focused army? Do I need, like, do you think about it that way and you try to have like one it, of every style or? It depends on how the pack is. So if you know, as per the pack, if you know where the scenarios fall and you know how the pairings are going to work, you can get, you can do that. France did this really well at Worlds. They had certain armies that they were definitely putting into certain scenarios. We also did it in 2019 with Les and the Fire Slayers. Um, we knew there was three three objectives in the middle of the board scenarios. So there you go, stick the 30 half guard on there and, and shake an opponent's hand, you know, that that sort of thing. You can do that if you know up front what the scenarios are. Something like the Warhammer World team event that we did, um, everyone played the same scenario. So it's hard to do something like that then because you don't have that extra leverage in the pairings. I think knowing the Knowing the scenario and knowing things like that gives the better pairers something extra to do. The better teams will do better more often um, because there's just more data points they can work with. Um, so if you know that up front, you can say, okay, well, you know, we're playing marking territory. So let's have a board flood army for that. But also, if you're playing against a good team, you're also telegraphing your pairings a little bit by doing that. If you're, if you're looking at an army that is guaranteed to go into one mission, or, or we think it's guaranteed to go into one mission, you've lost a bit of control. 
because we know okay well do we do we respect that and do we try and beat it or do we just offer it no power whatsoever because it's already going into a scenario that it's good at and then we we lose to that one but by knowing that we beat the other three mm. so there's there's arguments to both ways and okay. i think it depends no, it, on on how you how the pack is and, and how the team feels yeah and, and and i guess i'm asking this because if i'm if i'm building a, to a team i'm thinking right well i need an army that you know is very strong in magic so i'm going to try to find a zinch a teclas and the gash some type of you know a seraphon and i need to have that so when i go into my matchups you know if i do happen to find a uh, a magic focused opponent i'm going to try to match up my strongest magic to their strongest magic or i'll try to avoid them and yeah, exactly. kind of and it, i think it depends on the, the the quality of player as well and without being disrespectful to anybody so we did um what were the events called blood tithe um london-based yeah. team event run by mark wilson um so we did those as a club so at that time, this was sort of 2017-ish, 2018 maybe, um, there was myself, Tony Moore, Darren, Palmer, Nige Chilton. Darren doesn't really play AOS, um, but he'll do team events. Nige plays, often does okay, you know, two and three, three and two. And then me and Tony are the people that will generally go and, and do reasonable at events. So we have to pair with that in mind. So we know, okay, so we pair... We give Darren a job. So he took Stormcast, Shootcast with four dropping Celestar Ballistas and things because we knew there was hidden missions and that's where some of your points came from. And there was some of that killer hero or, or something like that. Like, you're not going to win any games. You're going to get four points around. You're going to drop your Ballistas. You're going to kill something and you can walk away. It's fine, you know. Nige will give you the 50-50s if we can. You know, you will give you a strong army. Like, he's Fire Slayers one year, Seraphon the next. So he'll be our, our seesaw. He'll be in the middle you know kind of with the pressure on him almost um but then me and tony have to pair and back ourselves to win every game if we're going to do well because that's how we win the rounds i think we came second one year me and tony both went five and oh nigel went three and two darren went oh and five but scored us the points that tipped us over the other teams and i think by knowing the the players on the team you can do that you know if you've got four incredible players you don't have to think about it in the in that sort of micro style you can just say, okay, we're going to make sure that we pair people into good games and we'll rely on their table etiquette and their quality of play to win us the event. Some teams can't do that. And you've, that's where the, the granularity comes in. And that's where I think I get a lot of practice with pairings because I've done all of these, right? I've done the, the teams with the weaker players. I've done the, the player and pairings. I've done the non-player and pairings. I've done six player. I've done eight player, four player, different packs, things like that. So it's shows how different some of the events can be yeah it's an important element and i guess i'm asking this as well is because i saw on twitter you're stepping down from running the team so team team england you are the captain but you are stepping down i think you're still going to be involved but you're not going to be captain so i guess hopefully yeah you, and that's up to the new you, captain right i i i think i think definitely you I'd you, like you have a shot <laughs> But, but, you know, like there's intrinsic knowledge over time. And I think when I was talking to the Australian team recently, I was talking to Matt Tyrrell, Matt, Matt's the current captain of Australia. Yeah. And he had mentioned that, you know, financially it's a bit expensive for him to be going to overseas, which I fully appreciate to be spending five grand, seven grand to go to a tournament yeah. that could be your family vacation is a tough, a tough sell every year. And, 
I guess, you know, you, you learn so much from the team's format. How do you retain it? And then how do you pass it on to other members? So, and that's kind of why I wanted to have this discussion with you, just so I can get into your head to understand, do I match up against the player? Do I start building lists and going, right, I really need you? Because like, what happens if if I have a Lumineth player who wants to run their Sentinels and now I've got a Daughters of Cain player who wants to run all the Bow Snakes? Is that two of the same list? Am I asking myself for trouble? Should I talk to my my player and say, hey, what about a melee-focused snake or what about witch elves? Like, should I have that discussion early on or should I just roll with the punches and have two similar styles of lists knowing that was, they meet the pack? The pack doesn't yeah. say they can't do it. So funnily enough, that, that kind of conversation came up when we were when we were talking about lists for Worlds this year. We, we looked at um, Luke was our last player to sort of settle on an army and he was sort of flirting back and forth between a few things and and one of the things that sort of led us to where we were with the the Lumineth was that we actually had no shooting armies um and at one point we had a conversation where do we have too many shooting armies are we are we weak to double turns across the board you know can we lose games on dice rolls um so we flipped back to things that were a little bit safer uh in the Nurgle and the the Knights of the Empty Throne and, and things like that but then we had zero shooting. Well, actually, shooting holds power in pairings because some things just do not like it. Iron Jaws, you know, things like that don't. And I think the Lumineth is the best version of it because it also has the foxes. It has the movement dictation and things like that. And Luke had played it before. So that we ended up with that. But yeah, it's definitely a consideration. You've got to think how your armies fit within the team's pairing strategy. Um, so things like that definitely, definitely do come into consideration. Um, in terms of retaining the knowledge, just practice. You know, we we did a few, probably not enough, mock pairing sessions once the lists came out. Um, you know, we did. We knew our first round opponents. We did a few with that. So what we did there is me, Jack, and Luke, who were doing the pairings. Um, we have a, a Team England Discord. We sat in one voice channel. And then the rest of the team sat in another. And we they were playing the other team, um, and we played the England game. Now... There's benefit to that, absolutely. But what I was really conscious of is not doing too much of it because they might not do what we think they'll do. And and if you become too practiced and too formulaic, if they throw a curveball or if or it's a curveball to you but not to them, all of a sudden you you your plans thrown out the window. So we did it just to see do we fit well into this team, but actually not to a point where we said, right, okay, this is I've lost. I've lost you. you, you I think. You, uh, go on, Tom. Is that? Am I still the voice? Yeah. Yeah. You're good yeah. now. You're oh, sorry, I'm just not the microphone. <laughs> um, so Tom, Tom, Tom's so excited about pairings. Yeah. Um. So things like that are, are key. Not not being over practiced. Um. Because you know, teams might not play the way you think they'll play. Players might not play the way they think that you think they'll play. You know, you could play two Thunder Lizard armies that are identical, one person will just full send and, and you'll be like, what on earth is going on? Because everyone else that you play doesn't. Um, so we made sure we were slightly practiced, but not over, not to the point where things became formulaic because then we we can't be flexible. Um, I think reflection on pairings and, and data is key. If you're going to do well at events, look at the output, see where the... the um, the event you could you could almost tell where the event was won and lost you know so if we look back at that picture with the um of our output one of the key ones if you can bring it back up 
Yeah, sorry. I was I, what I was going to bring up next was this one because I think <laughs> a, a bit of a bit of practice holding a trophy. Clearly, Dan Bradshaw there practicing in the pool was critical to your success. I was going to bring yeah. that up. Um, then, uh, pairings, pairings, so just pairings. To go back onto the the picture of me that, that looks ridiculous. Um, <laughs> there was a there's a tradition of England captains if they win the Ashes that they hold it above the head, but to a point where the belly sticks out over the the shorts a little bit. So that. I, I wasn't going to gonna sure. shame you at all. No, no, that that was that was on purpose. I had to get somebody to take the photo and make sure. Like, can you see my belly? That that was the key thing of that photo. Get down and make sure it's like the right angle and, and things like that. Um, so the one of the key ones here, if you look at the France, um, the France round is the top line, James. With um, so he was our only red scenario for the entire event. He was in a, in a game that he thought was red, we thought was kind of 1.5, like red to amber. And it was what made it red, by the way? Let me, I want to pause here. What makes it red? Is it that um, James with the list against the France opponent was, uh, it's an unwinnable thing, or, you know, was it the battle plan? Was it, was it a confidence level? Did confidence. James just go, nah, I don't think I'm going to win this one? It's, it's more on confidence than anything else. I think that's where a lot of people win and lose games. It's, you know, it's Iron Jaws. They can do Iron Jaws things. It was a one drop as well. So one drop versus one drop is often key on the roll. The reason it was a one over a two. So the way we did it was three was I should win and I should get 16 points-ish. Amber was it's dice or scenario dependent. Um, and I, if I lose, I shouldn't lose big. Reds were more chance of winning than losing but the, the biggest thing was if i lose it will be big mm. so if i'm going to lose it, it's going to be nil it's going to be one point or something like that because things are going to snowball so things like iron jaws we paired really badly into iron jaws as a team just because no one's particularly confident that they can just hold the tide because if they get the smashing and bashing and they do they do what they do they run through you was James Stormcast? James was, was using the dragons. He, he yeah. was Dragon Stormcast. So I guess when you're Dragon Stormcast versus Iron Jaws, it's I a guess, fight. Someone's getting twenty nailed, right? Yeah, um, and, and and I guess it depends on like how many drops somebody is. So if I'm up against the one drop Iron Jaws that can turn one charge me, I'm probably not feeling confident that I can handle and screen and why I might flag myself as a red as opposed to an amber, as an example. Yeah, exactly. It's not like it's. Red isn't, I'm definitely going to lose. It's more often than not, I'll lose. But if I lose, it's going to be a big loss. So we can calculate that into, into what we think is going to happen with the round. But if you look there, he was he was a red scenario into a red matchup. I can't, the scenario was powering numbers, maybe a six objective one. So the dragons don't really do well into six objective missions. Um, but then he got 14 points out of it, which was massive. He lost, I think he had three models left at the end of turn two, rallied a dragon, which is kind of cheesy, um, but then managed to to come back and win the game. And it's games like that sometimes that will win you the event. It's not the, it's not the, the Jack going, you know, average 19.71 points across the event because we pair for that. It's yeah. where, it's where things defy the numbers that you win games. It's where the player skill sometimes just comes out. Or, some, or something along those lines. Yeah, and, and, and people who are things, missing... Sorry, one of the key things on. that we did, and um, that you can see from that, is 
made sure that armies were always playing into good scenarios. So we ranked the scenarios ind independently of the armies, because again, conscious, I don't want to give players 2,100 data points to give me decisions because fatigue and things, and, and it's just unfeasible. Um, so even in, in most of our red matchups, the team was playing into good scenarios, which may have brought the ones to twos, but we didn't go that far into it. We said, okay, you're playing a, you're playing a bad matchup, but you're in this mission. And people are like, cool, that's fine. I'll do what I can with it. And a lot of the time that resulted in them winning the game, which I think, again, those are those points that you sneak that you maybe shouldn't have got are the points that tip you over the edge. Yeah, and as Darren, as Darren said there, you know, that if you take Jim's points out and Jim got zero against France, we lose the round. You know, that's not and to that's say probably... that Jim's the only person that did well against France, but you know, there's there's those things there that you can draw from that that's where the team wins. It's an example of where uh, a player wasn't expected to win. They weren't feeling confident yet defied the odds because they had practiced with their list or they had done something that had swung. And yeah, to Darren's point, um, that that result swung the round in their favor. So just as an FYI, um, some tournaments will will cap victory points. So uh, I know I think it's Runax. You know, don't don't quote me on this. It's it's been a couple of years because of COVID. But there was like, I think from memory, uh, Runax was like a maximum of 70 victory points could have been scored across the five, four games. So, okay. the, sorry. The, the, so it, all it took was three major victories and I think a draw and that would cap you. Yeah. But in, in some, some others, it could be right. So, you know, it's it's five players you know three need to win that becomes your victory and i guess it's hard to talk about teams specifically because every team format is so different but you can see i guess the, the picture i want to paint here is that people's role in the team isn't always to win it's about denial it's about um not major major losses it could be a draw or it could be a minor minor loss it could just be to score bat your battle tactics if you can do your five battle tactics that could be enough to score your team the points that they need to win the round or to um to to break the tie that might be happening on the ladder yeah yeah that's it and i think knowing the pack and knowing where your wins come from uh, and and how you win the event is key to how you build the team build the armies do the pairings because if an event doesn't have a cap, you want to make sure that if you're against the team that you'll beat, that you really want to beat. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Like if you're if, if you're playing a tournament, yeah, you're hundred percent right. If the, if you if you look at the incentive structure, if it's unlimited points, you just want to absolutely annihilate and get as many victory points. Everyone does their grand strategy, their battle tactics. Yeah. However, they're scoring. You just need to max. Isn't fun for anyone. I I find you know that I think introducing a cap gives you the opportunity to you know to take some risks with pairing. So when we did the the Warhammer World event, I I made some decisions that were questionable from a, a results point of view, but were good data points, good learning. I'm going to call up Lee Bromley's chat a comment here. Wow. Just listening to Tom about captaincy is blowing my mind. Uh, whoever takes over from him needs a big set of, of grapefruits. He said balls, but I'll say <laughs> grapefruits. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot that comes into this. And I, I hope, I hope if you're listening to this, you're not feeling overwhelmed. 
I think this is all about the experience that Tom has gained over time, working with some great minds. You know, you've talked about Jack, you've talked about Russ, you've talked about, you know, Darren, like there's so many great so people, many people in the community. Yeah. It's it's yeah. not Tom who's doing this. It's a, a combination of ideas. I remember um, the last team's tournament, um, it was myself, Dan Brewer, uh, Liam Bernard Blue and Hayden Walker. We all kind of stayed together. You know, we all came across the spreadsheet and as a team, we developed our traffic light system yeah. as a team. We pulled together, we shared our lists. We go, right. You know, what happens if you, you know, iron jaws are really popular at the moment. What happens if you're paired up into iron jaws and we start formulating these, these scenarios, these plans, these ideas. And, you know, through that discussion, the captain ultimately has a better idea of who to pair you against. And, yeah. And, you know, because there's a lot of pressure and the captain can't know everything about every army in every situation with so many battle plans and so many variations, even Stormcast. You could have shooting Stormcast. You could have like Vindictors and just like bodies that hold the objective. You could have dragons. Like there's so many variations. Oh, so the, you know, as a non-playing captain, I was very, very um, specific with the team to say, look, I, I, I know the matchups. You know, I can, I can do that. But what I'll back myself to do is if you give me the right data, I'll use that to pay. I'll I'll use that to pair. Or we, me, Jack, and Luke, will use that to pair into winning rounds. You know, I'm I'm not going to sit there and know that you're going to be good into that. You need to tell me this. Give me the give me the info. Then let's let's go and use it. Um, which, in some cases, if the data's bad, then things go wrong. So it's credit to everybody for giving me the right the right data. Jack and Luke were incredible as well, helping with the pairings. You know, we sat there. We always double checked. We had the chat, and we knew, you know, before even a card went down, I'll show it, show it to both of them, just make sure, you know, are we on are we on the same page. Sometimes we weren't. Sometimes it was a little bit of a discussion. The majority of the time, though, the person who wasn't on board came around when we when we had a little chat. Um, something that we did before each round, we knew who we were paired against. Was we'd sat, sit down as a team, we would go through the lists and the pairings, mainly because players had gone away and done this on their own. You know, they'd gone through their own feelings and, and things. Whereas now we're sat there as a team for the first time properly with all the information and the data. Let's just double check. And we changed a few things, not loads. I wasn't a big fan of, you know, oh, you know, everyone's changing everything. Because if Luke tells Darren that a matchup is bad, but Darren thinks it's good, I'll go with Darren. Darren's the one playing the army, you know, to use them as an example. And that happened quite a few times across the team. You know, somebody saying, "Well, I'm good into Stormcast," and then Stormcast players say, "Well, actually, I think I beat you." Well, I don't, I don't care. You're not playing each other. He's playing the other guy. You're playing somebody else. Um, and then the thing that we we sat down the three of us before each round, me, Jack, and Luke, was okay. So, who do we drop first? We know the scenario. We know the list. We've got the data. The only thing we can do, a hundred percent knowledge now, without any variables, is who we put down. And that dictates then, you know, if you start getting good matchups straight away, they're on the back foot. They're trying to take risks and, and things like that. So making sure that we knew, you know, we, do we either put somebody down who's got the most bad matchups in the hope that they give us one, we just take it away and, and off we go. Or they give us one that's a good matchup that they think might be good and we think is good. We take that and hopefully we're right and they're wrong. And then from there you've got the confidence then we delete the columns and the rows from the spreadsheet and we see okay so we've got this left and so yeah so this is probably a really good time to actually just rewind for a second because um 
people might not know the matchup process. And I guess I'd love to hear just a little bit about how you start laying down your players. So on the average team tournament, the average, not specifically, the captains will formulate strategy, right? So I, I, whether it might be a priority role and Team England or Tom, for example, let's say it's Tom and I. Tom might put down a player. He puts down a, a player name on the table. And as the captain, the other captain, I get to match up the first pairing. Then what might happen is then, then my role would then be put two of my players down and then Tom can pick one of them and, and just start. So basically it's like, um, it's like school where like, you know, when you pick people for teams, like I want you yeah. to play here and I'm like here. And it's this basically. Sometimes, everyone should sometimes for this and not the school ones. But. <laughs> and sometimes the captain will put themselves out first because they think, look, I'll go, I'll try to get the bad, bad matchup first. Or, you know, there's a lot of strategy and thoughts and, you know, do you keep your best player first? Like how do you match up? When you do the matchup process, do you put your worst out first, your best out first? Do you look at the battle plan? Like what goes through your mind through the matchup process and who you so, offer? Yeah, it's it's different again per per event. So one example, Brotherhood, um, where we did with the, the hand drawn shirts and things, we were I asked Chris to trial the timeout system that we were thinking about for ETC and Worlds, just so I could feedback to the council to say, you know, does it work? Um, and it did, but we had six players and you could have a non-player to do the timeouts there, or you could have a player, but they could only do them if their game was finished. Um, so I took Beast Claw Raiders, borrowed the army, having never really played with them before. I'd opted, well, I'm just going to throw me down. Give me what you want. I'll win. I'll, I might lose, but at least I'll be then available to help the rest of the team win their games. Completely misread it. So that was, that was a bad idea in general because the impact of me on the other five games, although it isn't nothing, isn't as much as me just winning a game. Hmm. So I sometimes threw a game to help the others. And actually, in a six-player event, a loss is big, and especially with something like Beast Claw Raiders, because if they lose, they don't generally get points. Um, so that was something that we learned, you know, always having a non-player, because you don't want anybody playing the games with the thought that they've got to help others as well. Also, playing captains sometimes subconsciously will pair well for themselves not even on like completely subconsciously um so uh, for, for other events again four four players is a little bit different because you don't have as much control over each of the pairings there's less there's less variable um you you pick two matchups each you know so we did one four player event we randomized it actually we just wanted to get an idea and a feel for different matchups uh, again that's not something i'd, I'd suggest doing <laughs> Especially when you've got polarized armies. Can you explain what Darren's saying? Because I actually never, I've never played a team's tournament where there's timeouts. So I'm imagining so, it's very, I'm imagining it's very much like the NFL, right? Where the coach can go, right, timeout. We all come together. We kind of strategize. Is that kind of yeah. like what happens? So timeouts was something that I think it was me that thought of it. But if it wasn't, I'll hold my hands up. Um, from doing the 2019 ETC as a non-player. I felt a little bit pointless during the round, you know, but I was probably the only non-player, maybe the front, maybe Guillaume as well, actually. So maybe, maybe two of us. And me and Guillaume just ended up talking for a little bit instead. But I was like, okay, so how do we make the non-playing person more important? You know, how do we make it more of a sports team sort of feel um, where you've got a manager or something like that? Um, for the other teams where English isn't the first language, we've, 
they're unfortunately forced to speak English at the table. So how do we give them the opportunity to de-stress and take take some time to talk to somebody in their own language and just sort of, you know, come out of the, the situation a little bit? So we came up with, okay, well, let's give players a timeout. So every game, every player can take a timeout. Uh, Three minutes, I believe it was. Um, five was bandied about, but I think five is too much. Um, so a three-minute timeout, which only the player can call. So I, I can't walk up to Darren, see that he's made a mistake, pull him away from the table. That's because otherwise there's too much emphasis on a non-player then. You know, like you're basically playing two versus one. Um, the player can ask for a timeout, and it could be for any reason. It could be just to tell me how... You know, Tell me how the game's going, although they could do that without. They just want maybe take some time away from the table. Um, ask for specific strategy advice. Um, so a, a non-player, according to the pack, can walk around. They can ask how the game's going. They can ask about the board state. They can ask um, – a, a player can ask the coach how a round is going. You know, are we winning the round? Are we losing the round? Not granular or anything like that. Timeout, you can go. You can talk about anything. You, know, you could take three minutes and talk about the weather if, if you wanted to. Um, ultimately, you're playing a chess clock. The timeout is on your time. Um, and it can only be called by the player that needs it at, on their turn. So they can't interrupt a opponent's turn for it. Um, and it's just an opportunity to come away and, and talk to somebody else about your game um, in your own language, which I think is key for, for the other countries. They can walk away, they can talk you know, Dutch, French, Spanish, German, whatever they want to their to their coach um, for a certain length of time. Gives them a little bit of a break away from the table and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's one of the best things in the pack, personally. And if uh, that may be because I came up with it. But I, can't, I genuinely can't remember. <laughs> sometimes, look, sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees. And I think, you know, even like in a one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes there's a lot of value actually going around the other side of the table, looking at how your opponent is seeing the battle yeah. and a, a different perspective can really change the way you play the game. And sometimes I'll do that. I'll walk around the other side just to look at how the battle looks on the other side. Um, and Darren's mentioning here, you know, you, you can't give specific, you know, feedback. You can't tell them, go kill this, do this. You know, this is the order of your battle tactics next. But it can be really, um, you can alleviate, alleviate a lot of stress when I hear that, Two of my uh, teammates have already won. So all we need to do is score one more win. And, you know, little Billy yeah. is looking like that the battle's going to win. So my role now, I can de-stress a little, still push, but, yeah. you know, so still we, go through the motion. And it depends on how the coach wants to do it. So in round six at, at Worlds, Richie was playing Peter Orkman. Um, he was the last to finish. And we'd already won the round and the event at that point. We're like, do we tell him? Do we, or do we just leave him to play the game? Do we tell him we've already won or do we just let him stress and play the game? And we opted to let him stress because we'd all had a few beers at that point anyway. Um, so, but going back to the point on, on pairings, there's so many different ways that you can do it. We did, we opted for a different strategy at Six Nations than we did for uh, Worlds. That was Laurie and Darren doing the pairings. I was a player. I didn't get involved in the pairings. Um, and it was, you know, so the way that they did it was just, Buy the greens early, get the good matchups early on, put the opponents under pressure, which is a really solid way of doing it. Um, for Worlds, we just added a little bit more granularity to it. We all we we had a rule where if we were offered a green matchup, we would always take it. We'd always take the green matchup because why not? I think 
we deviated twice, um, where it was quite clear that by taking the green matchup that was offered was also green for everybody else, whereas the mm. amber matchup was red for some others. So actually, okay, so in the in the wider world, that's better for the team. Might not be better for the individual player, but we'll make sure we tell them that the reasons why and what they're expected. Um, you know, give them the lift up still if it's a um so a lot of the times that's that's how we did it. Always had an eye to the final four pairings at Worlds because that's where you know a little bit more info. You can guarantee that two players are playing certain scenarios at that point because of the way the final bit works the same way as a four-player event pairs in general. So things like that um, we use to keep an eye on the, the spreadsheet and just make sure that as, as the spreadsheet's shrinking, that it's not getting more red or amber. Making sure that it's still still there's still a balance, still gives us choices. Yeah. I think you can if you take the greens too early, you could end up with four greens, four reds. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think and, you know, you'll win an event doing that, but you might not always win an event doing that. Yeah, yeah. As captain and as a team's format, you need to look at the overarching round as opposed to just getting the quick wins because then it does make things a little bit harder. You need to look yeah. at who are my players? It's almost like a game of chess. Like, who are my players? What's their best moves? And how, as a team, we can best position them as opposed to, look, we know we've got these two really good matchups, and then we're hoping that the other two are favorable for us. Yeah. I know Darren. Darren's philosophy on, on this, and correct me if I'm wrong, Darren, he's big on the psychology of Warhammer. Um, and I, I love it too, you know. And his theory is if you get two green matchups early on that are big 20-0 smashes in half an hour, this, the impact that has on the rest of the team is amazing. You know, wow, we've already got two wins in and, and things like that. So there's a, there's a massive merit to that sort of demoralization almost of, of another team, knowing that they're 40 nil down after two results. And things like that. Well, how many times, have, how many times have you seen a battle where uh, someone beats themselves and, um, or, or, you know, they, they think that they're losing and then somehow they win the batch at the end. And then it's the psychology behind mm -hmm. it. And you're like, Oh, Actually, I, I, I was seeing the world a lot more negative than it actually was. Yeah. And sometimes even, like I said, you know, you walk away, you take that three-minute break, come back to the table refreshed, you know, not stressing about your dice rolls, you're, you know, taking a different perspective and you're able to – perfect example, right? Over the over the weekend, I, I was at a tournament. I did really well. And um, I had a game, right, where – I was against Nighthawk, right? And I'm daughters of Kane. I'm I'm, I'm Drakey Gineth, so I, not Drakey. Uh, was it Drakey? Whatever, whatever. Ren Ren minus one is. I'm getting all the Ren in the world. I'm up against Nighthawk. Marathi, nine wounds taken, miscasts, three mortal wounds, dies in turn three. <laughs> I negged myself out. I got yeah. really upset with myself. I'm like, I can't believe it, right? Because Marathi was going to fight me out of this, and I took a moment, like I refreshed myself. And I think if I stayed in that negative state, I definitely would have continued to lose the game. But, you know, I, I stood back and go, right, well, what can I do? What what can possibly be achieved? And how about I just refocus on scoring my battle tactics, you know, pushing for the objectives, and ultimately I actually got a draw. Yeah. So the psychology behind it and keeping and I bet your you felt better about that draw than some wins that you've had. Oh, it was, it was amazing. Like, it was so good because, you know, in my mind – Marathi was so important at that particular time. And I couldn't believe I rolled a double one, then three mortal wounds, not two, three. So mm. going back to the psychology, yes, absolutely critical. 
maybe Darren and I need to talk. I've got a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner certificate. I'll, we'll start talking about science. We'll start talking about neurons and start talking about all the all the good things when it comes to to behavioral science. But uh, I'm 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 playing in the the T Sports Champs week list this weekend, and my list is very is on is on that sort of wavelength. It's I think opponents are going to think they're winning for most of the game. But I don't think they will, and I'll hold my hands up if I go zero and five. I'm completely wrong, but the list doesn't look like it does an awful lot on paper. But I think there's tricks to it that people might not see and things like that. And that's probably another part as well is not um, under under expecting or under anticipating what an opponent can do because while it might look like a a really green matchup, right? Let's say it's I don't know blades of corn. You're like, oh man, I should defeat blades of corn really easy what you don't know is this person has been doing really well with them. They've been playing with them for years. They've, they've yeah. had a lot of experience and they can force your hand. So, you know, I think what you were saying earlier about not over practicing and over um, creating scenarios can, can be very powerful. I think there's, there's two things to take from that as well. You know, you look at the, the people at worlds that owned their army, despite it not being the best army run you with the night horn and, um, can't remember his name. There's a Polish chap that used Slanesh. Um, one went five and one, the other went six and oh. Um, because opponents will underestimate them. Oh, they'll say it's Nighthorn, it's it's a three, it's fine. I'll I'll beat it. And they won't give it the respect it deserves. So we knew that if we played Sweden or Poland, we really needed to look at that list again. Like, okay, well, let's just talk about it. Because one of the things that I'm big on with teams events, and it, it becomes bigger the bigger the team, is tricks don't work as much because you're not you're not rocking up to a table fighting something for the first time and learning what it does. You get the list in advance in most cases. You've got a, a, a group of people to talk to about it. Someone will know it. Some, somebody will, will know the trick. So little gotchas don't work as well in teams. Me and Darren are big fans of, in singles events, only having to beat everybody once. Because once you beat them once, you change the army. It doesn't matter. You know, if you're going to play to win an event, Take something that they won't have seen before. Ask the questions. Make them make the wrong decisions. Know your army better than they know it. And you'll win an event, potentially, and then you walk away, you think, okay, I've done that. Now what? You know, and that, keep that cyclical thing going with armies and making sure that you don't rock up with the same thing more than once. Which yeah. is, some people can do, some people can't. You know, it's... And I, I, think, I think as well, like, one thing I'm picking out of this is... It's the the knowledge and having someone, either it's yourself or whether it's having at least a council of people on your team that can help pick apart lists and understand like, right, this is the linchpin. You know, you might not have the most favorable you know, matchups or things like that, but I know that um, the Grot army does this and so you need to look out for these things. Or you know yeah. that this is the wave of IDK and this is what they're going to try to do and look look for these things. Um, because again, there are so many factions, so many combinations of factions, it's impossible to understand the structure of everyone, but having some smart people, um, and someone you can collaborate with. And if you don't have those, uh, experiences, tabletop simulator, or what I'm hearing from you is before the event, you went out and hunted those events. You don't have an IDK player in your community. Cool. Go find someone somewhere else. Go, go play on tabletop simulator, yeah. get some experience from IDK, see the filth and understand from their, their, the, the way they're structuring it. So that when you come into it, you've got some experience. Yeah, exactly. We, we had conversations as a team about, okay, so uh, player X hasn't played against army Y. 
So can anybody just jump on TTS and, and run for a few games? Like, well, is there a point in me doing it? You know, is there a point in me playing? So I've never played Seraphon before. I'm not one of those people. Um, is there a point in me picking up, writing a, writing a Seraphon list or copying somebody's Seraphon list, using it on TTS? Because I might give you the wrong idea because I'll play it differently to the people who know what they're doing will do. Whether I win or lose, because you don't know what you're doing, I don't know what I'm doing. No one's learning. No one's actually walking away from that with better info than they came in with. Arguably, we're both worse off from a data point of view. Um, and the more times you do that, the more it reinforces wrong decisions. Um, yeah. So we had, I had a chat with Guillaume from France around their practice and their preparation. They played an unbelievable amount of games against the English lists. I don't know whether they did it with everybody else. They probably did with Denmark and Sweden and some of the other top teams, Wales as well. Um, but there's a danger there in that, you know, their players might not play their list the same way that we do. Um, mm. In the same way for pairings, you don't want those formulaic, this is what happens things stuck in your head because then you don't adapt. You know, you, um, so yeah, Darren Downs basically popped up the same point there. Yeah, it, it, it's it's all about what I can do. It's it's about you know I, I I've always had a belief that you can't control the cards that are dealt in life, but you can control how you respond to them. And winning might not always be the situation. You know, it's forcing hands. There's a whole bunch of things you can possibly do. But I think what I'm hearing from you the most it's about preparation. Um, it's about understanding and doing your best that you can. When I've gone to team tournaments. It's not necessarily what happens on the day. It's all the things that happen leading up to the event. And I think what I'm understanding and hearing from you, Tom, is it's about the team chats and, and being productive. It's about deliberate practice. It's about going in and, and whether you see the, t uh, the, the lists in advance or not, going out and getting practice so you can make better decisions on the spot. And overall, collectively, your team makes better decisions. And when you come together in between rounds and you talk about strategies and you look at pairings, you have more positive reference points that can, again, ultimately lead to better outcomes. You yeah, can't just rock up with yeah, the four best players. You can't just rock up with four great players and, and try to hopefully steamroll the event. There's a whole dynamic that you need to start thinking yeah. about. Um, like the, the, the whole chat productivity is, is key, you know, so... Don't get me wrong, in, in the England groups, we had plenty of unproductive chat as well. But I think that's WhatsApp groups in general. But what I did quite early on is I moved a separate chat. So, like, if you're going to talk rubbish, keep it in there. This is our list chat, right? So this is where we want proper discussion because I don't want to be sifting through hundreds of messages. For We should have used Discord. We didn't. I think that was a that was a mistake on my part. And Luke tried to get us on Discord instead. Um, Discord, for me, I play World of Warcraft. That's my World of Warcraft chat. And I, I don't know why I can't just do both, um, but that's just... So one of the things that we wanted to make sure is the more prepared we are when we go in, the calmer we are. You know, England as a as a country, rightly or wrongly, um, I think we're seen as kind of like the ambassadors for, for AOS. You know, we're from England, we're where the game comes from. We've got a target on our backs. You know, we, we win the events. So we don't... I don't want to be the first captain to lose an event, you know? Um, so the... The expectation is that we go, but I wanted to make sure that we set the right example as well. So yeah. by being prepared, by, by everyone knowing their role and not being bothered about losing where they're supposed to lose and being absolutely ecstatic if they win where they're not supposed to win, 
puts us in a good light. We look good in front of our opponents. You know, it gives us, we know our lists, we can talk to them. We don't have to, we're playing under a chess clock, but we don't have to be like super micro on it because we're going to finish the game. We can be nice people. We always make sure after the games, talk to people and, and things like that, ask questions and just make sure nobody goes out to an event to win best sports. It's impossible, right? You can't, you can't, it's not something you win, it's something you earn. And we um we went out there obviously we, we won and we got sports in 2019 absolutely amazing overwhelmed this year events bigger more competitive probably than it was in 2019 we just wanted to make sure to go out and not sort of fall victim to that competitive nature we wanted to go out and make sure that we still with a team of six new people as well six people that hadn't been to worlds before i think maybe five from memory um that we still those ambassadors that we were in in 2019 um and you know i don't know if there's something from the the french uh war game stream where they announced where we won sports and i i broke down i was like i was that to me you know we knew we'd won we didn't know we'd, we'd got sports and that that was almost as important you know that to do both again was was fantastic so first off, congratulations. I remember hearing about England getting best sports as well because, one, um, people, you got you do, you've got a target on your back, especially when you have play testers who might be in your community playing. So England is always the team to beat. How, how, do, how do I win best sports? And obviously that's that sounds bizarre, right? But it, sometimes for people it's hard to be really competitive and, and try to win games and be best sport. Because yeah, often sports is sports is usually tied to like I don't want to say the loser. They, they, please don't uh, you know quote me that. No, way. I think it's... The best sports are normally the person who wins who who doesn't win very much, and it can be token sometimes. It can but be consolation do, prize, yeah. um, and I think this comes because it's so subjective, right? It's it's a team voting at world specifically. It's it's eight or nine people voting for one. It's not everybody has a has a vote. Um, so it's leaving an impression on the team you know making sure that that you're good on the table clean on the table no drama no cheating no you know no issues like that which sometimes will mar a game obviously um but sometimes yeah at singles events it's it's the person who perhaps didn't do so well took a, a strange army or something you know some, i'm gonna dress up i'm gonna play green skins i'm gonna shout wah things like that and that's to me, that's not sportsmanship, but that's what people think sportsmanship is in a singles event. When you're in a competitive team environment, I think sportsmanship becomes what it should be. You know, it's about doing things in the right way. It's not about being quirky or zany or, or something like that. But like you, see, you can't go and win best sports. You can't target it because of how subjective right, You've danced around my topic. Let's get into the granularity. Give me okay. some feedback, right? So if I want to be best sport, right? So some of the things that come to my mind would be to have intentions clear, right? So when I'm about to make a roll, I, I'll, I will announce before I roll, I'm hitting on threes, wounding on threes. So my opponent knows what they're looking for. I will make a, dis a discussion to say if a dice lands on a piece of terrain and it's not flat. By the way, I roll in a dice box, but you you, you make it clear that this is a re-roll situation. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that you can do to make the you know the communication really clear. What else can I do to be perceived as a good sport in a competitive sense? In a competitive sense, clean play. Um, so being really upfront with your opponent, start talk to them. What kind of game do they want? Be adaptable to them. You know, 
you probably you, as a, as as a player in England, we always say you probably play a lot more than than they do in a competitive sense, just because we have events every weekend if we want. So talk to them about the type of game they want. Adapt yourself to them. So, um, the Danish round actually right before we started, they did something really cool. They said, "Look, this is how we play as a team, not individually. This is how we play. If it's okay with you, we'll share dice." We'll we'll do this. We don't do any take backs. We don't, you know, this is, and we we do it this way as a team. And I thought that was amazing. That was really really good because then it sets us up. Okay, well, this is the type of game they expect. It's the type of game that they want as well. So if you're going to be harsh with them, that's not being unsporting. That's playing the way they want to play. Yeah. That's sporting in in my eyes. You know, talk to them. Talk to your opponent about. Yeah, cock dice is is always a key one. Um wobbly model terrain things like that which worlds was very good at, at, at kind of rushing that straight away but at a, at a local event you know can i do this before the game not not when it matters because when it matters you're both going to disagree because it's going to be favorable for one or the other and that's where issues start to, to come in agree it beforehand um things like just rocking up with the right stuff you know knowing um knowing what your stuff does which is quite key having a tape measure having your dice not sort of being clean even you know this is my corner of the board that all of my stuff goes on um if you want to teleport something there i'm going to be annoyed but i'll move it to the other side yeah um the the other things you know if you're if you're talking to an opponent i'll use toby as an example against france i think it was um where he there was a an opportunity where the French guy, it may not have been France, so apologies um, if it was, the French guy asked for a take back. Um, and Toby, <laughs> like both both knuckles on the table, leant over to him and just really politely said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to allow that because of X, Y, and Z. And the French guy were, oh, okay, it's a Welsh. Sorry, Darren. Um, uh, and the opponent was like, yeah, it's fine. You know, And again, I think it's, if you're going to do stuff, do it in the right way. Everyone, it's, it's an it's amazing. I was just to say, it's amazing how much the early conversation of of etiquette. Like I was, uh, one of the comments that kind of caught me was when I talked to the Australian team. They were talking about how was it was it mystical terrain? I think it was. I can't remember what it was. There was a scenario where there was I think, a yeah, where, you, where they were removing models from further away than an inch from the terrain or something. Yeah, there was. Oh, no, it was no, it was a protection of Nagash. It was protection of of, of, of Teclas. It was Teclas's protection of Hish, where they were talking about you know holy within versus taking away models similar to uh, mystical, where if you you know you take away the model that's within one inch of mystical and and protection. Like anyway, we all have different ways of playing the game. And I think it's that conversation and the intention of, like, I played a game the other day at the tournament, and, I, and my opponent wanted a, wanted a take back, and I said, "Look, I'm happy for you to do it, but re remember this: if I want to do it as well, like, we've got to be clear on when we can do something, when we can't do something." Mm. Yeah, I think it's, um, and that's a hard one to do as well. You know, we um, we're all we all want to win. Something that, that that Darren said there as well. End of each round, you know, walk away as a team. You've won or you've lost. You know, we're lucky that we won all six rounds. Some bigger than others, but we'd never sort of like chest bump as a team and go, yeah. You know, we do. We kind of do a bit of that in private, but we wouldn't do that in front of the opponents. Yeah. Um. 
I always sat down with the coach or the captain of the other team for a little bit afterwards and just said, you know, how do you think it went? You know, what, how did your pairings go? What did you think um, happened in various bits? And they were asking me for help and advice as well, always making sure to, to offer it because at the end of the day, we want the scene, the, the overall scene to get better, which is why doing things like this, I think is, is really cool. You know, here are, like, it's a complete brain dump of my thoughts as a pairer and a captain. You know, people will walk away with what they want to walk away with, but hopefully everyone grows from it. I think the other the other one I mentioned, Tom, is and I, I try to celebrate my opponent's victories as much as like when I say victories, I don't mean like major victories, right? Like if they're like, right, I'm going for a dice roll, I need a 10 plus charge. If they hit a 10 up charge, I want to high five them, I want to congratulate them. I know it's obviously a bad thing for me but it's a collaborative experience. And the more you can do that and you create a game, the less tension and the less um, stress that happens on the table. And we have a, a free flowing game. I, I wish I had that much uh, control over my emotions. When we'd played the France round and I watched every single person lose a priority role at the same time. <laughs> oh my God, what's going on? Oh, I don't celebrate priority roles, but there's like no there's sometimes like there's those, there's nah, like, no oh my God, yeah, you, but like there's there's some things that you can do to you know to create sportsmanship and and obviously it's not about gaming and trying to get all those points, but you know there there is a way to be competitive but also a good sport and yeah. you know like, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. Point, you know you only see true sportsmanship when it's unrewarded. I think that's that's correct. You know sports points at events I hate because it, it's fake. You know there's there's all sorts of weird stuff that goes on with sports votes being part of the final standings. I think a lot of places are going away from that. Um, but all you can do as a as a player is present yourself in the way that you think your opponent wants to play, and that's that's it. You know, they let them then decide. You know, there's none of this going around after the event. Oh, you know, our favourite game. You got our sports vote and, and things like that. It's just it's fake. You know, it doesn't yeah. get anybody anywhere. You know, this whole press tour after after a tournament, high fiving your opponents. And, when when sports points get involved, I like them to be defined. So it's like, was the person on time? Were they clear? You know, very <clears> metricated, <throat> very like ticks box. It's like yes or no, and it's very defined yeah. as opposed to, because like you know, we both work in sales, right? You know, like you, you know, customer service is like rate rate us out of zero to ten, and I never give someone a ten, not because they don't deserve it, but like that means they exceeded my expectation. Yeah, they could not have and, done anything better, which is like. It's very unlikely, but to, to give someone a five out of five without a metric can be quite tough because like, did I have this most amazing game? And like, it was, you know, we were basically BFFs. No, but yeah, by not giving them five, I'm punishing them. And like, it's not fair. Yeah. So, and without those, without those metrics, you know, take backs are one of those things that, that occur quite a lot. You know, if I offer a take back, is that sportsmanship? I, I don't think it is. I prefer to play a cleaner game of, of Warhammer. You know, I, I don't ask for take backs. I'll often give them, you know, if they're if they're offered, depending depending on the scenario. And I think that's my own fault, right? I if it was round one of an event, I'm more likely to give a take back than at round five. And I shouldn't do that. But that's competitive nature. So I think if we all get away from that, not to say that no one can ever give a take back, but I don't think that's what sportsmanship should be. You know, it's Fair to say if there's a if there's like a gotcha moment or if they didn't see something or something like that, it's like look, I'll point point something out in some cases. But again, I, this is different at different events. 
world's level caliber of sportsmanship is not the same as local Correct. tournament sportsmanship. World Masters, whatever the you know the championship, yeah. completely different because the expectation of the caliber of the person knows what they're doing. Versus if I'm rocking up and it's a pretty casual event, I'm at you know Element Games or wherever it might be having a Warhammer World. That yeah, you're a lot more casual. There's less on the line. A lot more people who are not tournament hardened. So yeah. you know you you read the room, and for me as well, it's always been about um, what's the impacts. So, like, if someone forgot to cast one spell and we're about to kick into the movement phase or, you know, okay, that's fine. When someone, we're in the middle of combat or shooting and they've forgotten to do something, different story. So there's always, for me, it's always degrees, but we yeah. kind of, kind of getting too deep on that one. Maybe maybe two final questions. I think I could yeah. talk to you, Tom, forever, mate. I think you and I could talk forever. Oh, I've got right. COVID. Yeah. I'm surprised I'm, I'm holding up as well as You're doing I have. well. <laughs> I'm very well. Well, partially dying. You talk chess <laughs> clocks. Okay. Is this something? I, I, you know, like, is this something that you enjoy? Is this something that all tournaments should use? Should we use them at the top tables on day two? Like, what's your feel? Because I think for most people, I've seen a lot of people weigh in on chess clocks, but most people haven't got experience with it. They just they they, they have a thought. Yeah. So. I'll caveat this with my experience is completely different from anybody else's because I haven't played with one. I've only coached. So as a coach, they were amazing. I could walk past, I could see the spread of time. If it was heavily one way, that's fine because it's punishment. If you run out of time, there was no, at no point did I have to go to a player and say speed up or do this, that, and the other. At no point did an opposing coach or I have to go to the opposing team to say your player's playing slow because it's recorded. You know, somebody wanted to go to the toilet. It's on their time. It's fine. Whatever. You know, you're playing a, you know, the France, the Wales games, arguably they're the rounds for the tournament. If you want to take 10 minutes to sit there and think about a specific thing, do it, but just know that you've got to make that time up somewhere else. I, I don't feel I can comment too much on them as a player because other than a couple of practice games, I haven't used them. And I'll be honest, during the practice games, I forgot about it. Because they were playing practice games and I wasn't practicing the chess clock, I was practicing an army. Maybe after this weekend, chess clocks are in force at, at the, the Champions event. So I'll have a different, maybe a different opinion. I don't think so. I think, I think I'll enjoy using them as a player as well. But I can only really speak as a, as a non-player and being able to walk past. There were some times where I had to nudge people and say, look, is what you're doing now supposed to be on your time or your opponent's? Because it was maybe their opponent's turn and the clock was ticking on on them but that's just that people aren't used to them side of things um if we're talking local events or big g local events i think no like you know you don't discourage people from playing it, it seems counterproductive talking at big events becomes a different story but i also don't think it's a top table only thing because are you then saying your mid-table players times less important no mm. it isn't you know, they, they may not be playing for the win. 40k does it in a way where I think if the chess clocks have to be there at the event, if both players want, no, if one player wants to use one, they have to use one. And I think that's fair. You know, it's it maybe, maybe you're walking across the table, it could be any table, any round, and your opponents put 60 pink horrors on the board. You're like, okay, I can envisage an issue. Please, can we use a chess clock? And I think that's fine um, at the bigger events. I think 
world's players have a slightly jaded view on the chess clock being the rounds with three and a half hours. That's not normal for a yes. world event. So you're under less pressure because the time you've got extra half an hour, even 45 minutes in some cases. Opinions might be different if that clock time goes down by 25 minutes a player. You know, that's mm. all of a sudden then it, it becomes a little bit more rushed. But also becomes may, maybe as important, maybe more important because you've got less of a spread of time. Um, I think if I was to brainstorm an idea now using something like Wizards of the Coast as, a, as an example, we always love to, to look at magic and other competitive hobbies as a, as a drawing board. Wizards have different rules levels. So they have standard REL for Friday Night Magic and for local events. The moment you step up to GPs, PTQs, things like that, I haven't played Magic for ages, so the terms might be wrong now. But when you step up to that, it's um, competitive rules event level. So, you know, can Warhammer draw from that? Can we have you know, this tournament is a regular tournament? You know, whatever, no chess clocks, do whatever you want. This is this is anyone can play. Do we then have bigger events that then either enforce them or have that one player can mandate? Um, which people, new players, may be a little bit more put off. But also, they're likely to be the bigger events. And actually, players who tend to go to the bigger events tend to have fun, regardless. Yeah. Yeah. And if they are, they're not doing particularly well. What is the chances of said opponent on table 50 mandating a chess clock? But I think having them as an option is is worthwhile. Um, again, talk to me again on Monday after playing with them. It might be different, but I don't I don't think it would be. No, I think, you know, Darren mentioning as well in the chat that, you know, uh, everyone seemed to go five rounds, which is awesome. And I don't know if that used to do the chess clocks because it was extended rounds for Worlds. But I think, you know, for me at least, I'm interested in trying the chess clock. I'm, I, it, it was an available to me at the tournament that I was just at, but I have less than 10 games of Daughters of Cain under my belt. So yeah. I didn't want to add that extra pressure. But now that I've got some repetition and I've got over 10 games with the new book, I'm willing to try it. And can't, even if I'm just watching my own time, just to speed up the process, because um, whether I'm running a horde army, like I'm always super nervous and Actually, you know what? At my own detriment, when I play my gits and I do play them a lot, 160 idiots, I'm always playing super fast because I'm always concerned about my opponent and dragging the game down too slowly. But actually, but that chess be. clock... You might not be doing that anyway, but subconsciously you'll think it and your opponent will think it because you've got more models. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, for but me, like I'm, I'm going too yeah. fast. Yeah, sometimes it, it actually just adds that leveler that the art, the player with, the more mod, the, with, with more models isn't the slower player because you've got proof of it um and but it's hard without the chess clock if you're called a slow player using horrors or gits you can't really defend it because it's more likely that you are but you might not be yeah yeah you know I, there's been plenty of time but like if i look at the clock and go right well i've still got plenty of time i can chill out and slow down because i'm looking at the clock and i see how much time i've got and yeah. i'm not rushing and and you know i think that's always at least I'm really nervous when I play my hordes because I don't want to be seen as taking too much time and then my opponent doesn't get enough time. So um, I, like I'm, I'm willing and open and I, I'm glad to hear so many positive experiences from the world's people. I think overall people seem positive about it yeah. and I wonder if it'll become more common whether it's just an option for me like, hey, yo, I want a chess clock or if it's yeah. something at the top tables or you know, round four and round right. five 
whatever it might be. Sure. Yeah. Last question. And maybe like, this is like almost like your sales pitch, Tom, if someone's thinking about playing teams or maybe even playing worlds, what would you say to them? Apply is the, is the main thing. Um, so we are in a transitionary period at the moment as a team. Uh, we're hoping to have a new captain selected by Friday next week, so 25th, something like that. Uh, applications close on Monday, and then we've got a voting period as a team uh, where the, the outgoing players from the Six Nations and the Worlds team will vote the new captain in. Um, so we've got some applications in at the moment, all look really good. Um, from that point, me and the chosen captain will amend the charter. So we've got charter written for how selection should work, but I it needs updating to reflect worlds instead of ETC, eight-man teams instead of six. There's no point in me doing that. I may as well do that collaboratively, collaboratively with the new captain rather than dictating what they need to do. Um, so team selection will start fairly soon. We've got six nations in November <clears throat> in Belfast. So selection for that will start fairly soon. Um, apply, apply, apply as well. We can say that there'll be a selection committee as normal chosen by the new captain or captains if we go multi-captaincy the same way we did this year. Um, players that don't get in will always get feedback from somebody within the committee about, you know, why they didn't get in, not to put them down, more of a go away and, and do this. So use Toby Meadows as an example. He applied the first year, didn't get selected, fairly new to the scene, had come from 40k, had made an impact, but was probably a little bit, too, a little bit green hadn't played team events and things like that, got the feedback, went away, played some team events, won some events, got on some teams, you know, it's offered to spare player for teams that needed him, um, that he didn't know the people. Everybody's like, look, mm. I'll come and play, I want the experience. Goes away, applies again for Worlds, gets straight onto the team, does really well. So the system works, <laughs> is, the, is the hope. Um, so apply, if you don't get in straight away, don't be dejected. We've only got, 14 spaces and some of those spaces will be taken up twice by players who need to play six nations and um worlds but we are in a uh, sorry 16 spaces we're eight and eight now aren't we not eight and six um so we are in a growth mindset as a as a team so we are always looking to bring new people on it's not a closed shop you know we've had 20 unique players over the last four events so you know majority of the team this year has done their first event um so you know we're, we're constantly looking to bring new people on from a selection point of view have done team events have done well um used a variety of armies potentially um you know there's there's all those sort of things that that will go towards somebody's selection an actual application you know there'll be something to fill in you know make sure you use that space to tell people why you should be selected not just please see my TSN rankings page. I've won 28 games or something like that because oh, that's cool. But you know, have they all been with the same army? Do we have? Do we need you to use a different army? Is there any evidence there that you can play something else well? So, and I I, I I appreciate that you are speaking on behalf of like all teams at this point in time. And I recognize that everyone has different selection criteria yeah. and what's <clears throat> important to them. And there's a lot of things, right? That 
if I was aspiring to play in a world's team, let's say it was England or any any team, right? Like I see Cons just jumped in the chat talking about Greece. And I think that's a cool thing, right? There's going to be more and more teams coming next year, especially as COVID restrictions and challenges yeah. start getting, you know, Canada missed out, unfortunately. Ukraine and Russia missed out. I'm hearing other teams are going to be getting involved. So it could be a really had, big world. Yeah, in, in the Discord, we had Team Peru and Team Argentina from memory and Singapore. Um, yes, so I've heard Singapore. Now, these, you know, these um, more long haul nations as well. They can, they can make it over. If we get thirty teams next year, then I wouldn't be surprised if it's thirty or more because, like, was it twenty two or twenty four this year? Twenty one in the UN this year. So yes, you had all these people that were that wanted to come. Like Canada had to drop late. There was a couple of drops. Very likely could hit the thirty, but is it? What's more important to you? Is it that, you know, I've come first at a bunch of large events? Is it flexibility? Um, is it that I can win with multiple events? And maybe I'm more of a 4-1 type player, but I do it with a couple of different armies throughout the year. Um, is it, like, how, how do you even know about culture? Like, how do you know if I'm going to fit Team Harmony? Like, is it, like, the language that I use? Like, what? I, I, I it's guess, really, yeah, it's, yeah. it's super hard. So, you know, from a culture point of view, what I don't want is people that will come to me after a game and say, I lost because of dice. That's, that happens, you know, but that's not why you lost in most cases. Um, Toby, again, great example of this, lost a few games at Worlds, never once complained about dice, always managed to point me to the mistake he made and never made the mistake again. That's the sort of player that you want on the team. Um, you know, I'd rather have, as a captain, Four people that have four and won ten events with different armies than a person who's five and owed with the same army every time. In most mm. cases, the the difference is where does that one game? If you're four and one, are you losing the table one game every time? Because if you're losing the table one game every time, is there a mindset issue? Because Worlds is six of those. Worlds is six table one games with the country riding on your back and things like that. So you need to prove that you can win those games you know if you if you constantly hit table one and get knocked back down there's got there's, there's something to push past potentially there before you go through to sort of a world's level event in some cases but again sometimes the armies that you use might fit with a team strategy of you know you might go and be the the orange matchup person um and things like that you know but Generally, I find when somebody wins one event, they win a few more. So once they push past that four and one boundary, it opens the floodgates a little bit, and then they become that player. Um, but yeah, experience of matchups, team experience is huge as well. You know, if you've never done a team event, I'm not, I wouldn't select you for worlds. Sim simple as that. Um, you may get selected for Six Nations as a as a proving ground. Under the proviso that you attend some other team events beforehand, because team events need that analytical level of knowledge. You know, you can't just play on intuition. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm a huge intuitive player, so I don't often think that my predictions before games are as accurate as some more analytical players would be. But you need to get that in your head. You need to know where your strengths are with stuff like that. But that 
but that comes with over time, right? Like intuition and, you know, natural instinct kicks in because you've got repetition over time. You've got experience. You have thousands of games under your belt, whether you've watched, you've played, you've discussed real live tabletop simulator, that all feeds into intuition. And it's interesting hearing how important the six nations brotherhood, other different team events are essentially your feeder system because yeah, you know, so we, six nations, we in the old charter when worlds were six players and six nations was eight, we put a stipulation in that player needs to be a six, needs to have played a six nations before we can select them for worlds. And that's mainly just to create that funnel system so that you're, you're never sort of bypassing people and things. Um, we had to break it a little bit because of COVID and various other things. And then when Worlds went to eight players, I, in the charter, I'd already written that when Worlds goes to eight, we'll heavily reconsider dropping that. Because otherwise, if you start to lose Six Nations applicants, you, your pool gets smaller. And that's not what I want. The pool wants to be as big as possible in most cases. Um, so yeah, team team events as feed around play. Seek out games and, and play with the people who... you I, uh, better than you and i don't mean that in a in a holy than now sense but the world's players play games against them get your get your name known get your face known um because although we'd never select on faces and names it doesn't hurt you know go prove that you're a nice person you know don't don't rock up to a little practice week day with a few people on the world's team and, and be a tool because you know you might beat us but are you doing it in the right way you know we We'd never want to select somebody who's going to give us a bad reputation because you know we've got sportsmanship awards to defend as well as as well as winning the event you know so yeah it's it's a bit of everything i think the other consideration we haven't talked about and maybe it's because of the australianism in me is um australia when it went from six to eight players um we we included a couple of mercenaries fabian peter for example yeah. and neither of them australian but what got them into the team obviously one they're good players um unfortunately missed out on england selection but the other one is with tabletop simulator and you know people like um there's butcher's buffet there is the um owen jackson tournaments um there's a whole bunch of different tabletop simulator events that you can get yourself known. You can get yeah. yourself to understand and meet virtually players that are, you know, very well practiced, could be on world's teams and go hunt them out. So yeah. um, lots no, of ways. The teams is also a very good way to get, you know, if you, you turn up for a, for an application for a team and they say, oh, what teams event, teams experience have you got? Actually, I was there last year. You know, I played for this team. I sought them out. They needed a player. And I, I took that on and, and went and played and, these are the results. This is what I took from it. You know, that's that's golden. Yeah. I hope through this almost two hours of discussion, and I could keep talking to you, Tom. I could talk to you till the cows come home. I've got um, black coaches to base before I leave for not you've even got, soon. You've, you've got a tournament <laughs> literally soon. I'm dying of COVID. I've got General's Handbook things to record and edit. But this has been really insightful because, again, one, look, Worlds isn't always people's goal. And the challenge with Worlds is it's expensive. You know, to take a week or two weeks off to travel halfway around the world in my situation, and that money could be a family holiday, it could be something like a new car, whatever it might be, is, is often a bridge too far for a lot of people. 
So even if Worlds isn't your goal, there's plenty of teams tournaments. I've named just a couple, and I'm sure there are hundreds, well, maybe not hundreds, but there's a lot more teams tournaments that are available to you. And if you don't have one, no doubt you could start one. It's a simple four-player tournament. You, uh, it, It's a great format. I highly enjoy playing in it. I will happily play again. Um, I am considering applying for the Worlds for next year, so who knows how that'll work out. But I, I, it's, it's a completely different experience from match play, and I think part of it is it's the competitiveness. The other part is going to be the spirit of competition and community that's involved. And ultimately, I think a little bit of the the, um, the country pride as well. And I think yeah. there's a lot of fun fun in that. Mm-hmm. I always say teams is match play plus. You know, you're playing with the framework, but just so much added on. You know, it's just just layers and layers of complexity, but not in a bad way. It's yeah. just everything that that makes the game good is is exaggerated with teams events. Everything you know from singles is thrown out the window, and that's why I love about it. You just yeah. throw out the whole structure you're so familiar with. Tom, if people wanted to find more about you or wanted to chat to you, I have your Twitter handle in the description. Awesome. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're still private. but No, I haven't been for a while. Um, so my, my issue was um, working for myself. My name is the company name as well. So when you Google me, it brings up the Twitter feed. And at first I was like, oh, I don't know about it. But I'm like, just live with it at this point. As long as I don't start doing anything naughty on Twitter, I'll be fine. Just lean into it. Like I remember when I worked in a te- at a tech company, we used to have like, you know, tech companies will have like a day off every month where you can do like some cultural thing. I brought Warhammer in. I'd be sitting yeah. at my desk painting. Oh, no, don't, don't get me wrong. I, it's, it's not a hidden part of my life in any way, shape or form. You know, my, my business profile has it plastered all over it and things like that. It's um, It was more just that that's my thoughts in 140 characters that could quite easily be mis- misinterpreted. But I think no. I'm clean. So your Twitter okay. handles below. Go follow Tom. Um, highly recommend. Great, great Twitter and I'm in very knowledgeable. Discord under uh, Discord name is Magnitude, um, which is an old Warcraft thing. Um, so I'm in there as well. Hit me up on on Discord if you uh, if you want to chat. If you pick my brains on on teams events, I'll talk about Team Warhammer all day every day. Any shout outs? Anyone you want to shout out or any even trash for the TSN um, champions? As an out, as an outgoing captain, again, just massive thanks to the teams um, and community selection committees, things like that, for making my job a lot easier and for helping me as well. You know, it's I, I'm the captain, but in no no way do I do this on my own. It's uh, collaborative, and um, yeah, if, if everybody played their part every every single time. No, oh, that's awesome. All right, Tom, I'm going to go and awesome. go get some hot drink and feel my throat. You are an absolute legend. Go follow Tom on, on Twitter. Go chat to him in the Discord. There's like 5,000 people there in the Discord. Awesome. Uh, insane community. Love you all. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Hopefully I get to meet you next year if I get if, yeah, that'd um, be amazing. If I'm in the world's team. Um, just gonna find I'm over anyway. First. Well, if not, like I, I want to come to – I'd love to come back to England. I'm, I'm waiting for an event to come out. Um, who knows? Maybe Bobo. Like I'm, I've been, I'm going to LVO. Maybe it's it's a Bobo or some big event. I did Blood and Glory a few years ago. Um, who knows? Well, who knows? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt, we'll see each other in person. All right, everyone, thanks awesome. for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Uh, you know what to do. Hashtag like, comment, best ever. Tom is a legend. You've learned so much. I've learned so much. Tom, I'll let you go and paint those black coaches, and I <laughs> will go and rest the voice. Thanks, everyone.
Bye. Thanks for sticking around until the end. I hope you found that video interesting and you walked away with a few new ideas. If you did, I would appreciate it if you hit like on the video as well as left me a comment. Let me know what your thoughts are in the comment section below. The conversation will continue over on Discord. So leave down below in the episode description if you want to join the Discord and continue the Age of Sigmar conversation. I want to give a massive shout out as well to these absolute bloody legends, these champions who have continued to support me through Patreon or YouTube members. That is going directly into supporting the maintenance and the growth of this channel. So thank you very much, guys. Much appreciated. And until next time, roll more sixes.